trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. Hey, I'm happy to welcome my friend Caleb France from the Profiles in Liberty podcast back to the program. Caleb, how are you today? Brian, I'm doing well. It's uh, it's a good day. Yeah, well, and you know, I know we have a topic today that I just in talking to you before we jumped on the air here, I realized, man, this is a story that I really didn't know anything about. Talk to me about Richard, I'm sorry, Richard Henry Lee. I've heard the name before, but if someone were to ask me, okay, why was he important? I don't think I could tell him. So who was this guy? Yeah, so Richard Henry Lee is, is really one of my uh, one of my favorite founding fathers. He was really, uh, in in a lot of respects, the first founding father uh, before uh, before there was Jefferson, before there was Adams, before there was uh, your Washington. Uh, Richard Henry Lee was there uh, in the very beginning, uh, prepared to take very bold stances. Uh, throughout the revolution, uh, and then later on in his life, he continued in, in his uh, tradition of, of taking those bold stances uh, in support of things such as uh, the Bill of Rights. Um, Richard Henry Lee came from a, a very well-off and, and prosperous family by all accounts. He, he was born into a very privileged life, uh, but in spite of that privilege and in spite of the, the self-interest that, that could, have, could have very easily taken hold of him, um, he, was, he was very principled and, and, and very much cared about the cause of, of liberty and cared about uh, the cause of independence, um, as we well uh, see in our, in our conversation today. Interesting. I mean, look, we've got the 4th of July coming up here, not too far away. That's right. Yeah. We're going to be celebrating independence. Thomas Jefferson gets a lot of the credit, but I did not realize that Richard Henry Lee was the guy who more or less paved the way for Jefferson and his declaration of independence. That's right. So uh, one of the reasons why um, I suggested that we kind of chat about Richard Henry Lee today is because uh, on June 7th, so just a few days ago, uh, this week uh, is the anniversary of what's referred to as the Lee Resolution that was proposed to in the Second Continental Congress. He proposed this in uh, on June 7, 1776. This was essentially uh, the actual declaration of, uh, of independence, uh, whereas he says uh, resolved uh, that the... Uh, that uh, excuse me, I don't have <laughs> I don't have it right in front of me, but essentially resolved that um, that these uh, colonies or states are in a uh, right ought to be free and independent states, uh, and that is what they uh, voted on in Congress on uh, on July second and approved uh, to to separate from Great Britain. Help us understand what a big deal this was. This was not some rash decision. This wasn't a bunch of hotheads right. just, well, that's it. We're not getting our way. We're going right. to, you know, declare, you know, ourselves independent. Talk to me about some of the, the thinking and some of the, the processes that led up to this very, you know, big decision. 
Well, it was honestly not very popular at first. A lot of the founding fathers uh, were very much against the idea of separation, uh, even up until the last uh, moment. I think of someone like uh, John Dickinson, uh, uh, and and he uh, essentially uh, held out to the very end uh, and and refused to put his name uh, to to the document, uh, refused to sign the Declaration of Independence because he wanted to find a peaceful resolution, a peaceful way to, to resolve the conflict. Um, that was not the case with everyone, obviously, uh, but early on, many of the more prominent founding fathers were initially very much against the idea of separation. But Richard Henry Lee was sort of the outlier. Him and John Adams and Congress uh, were very early adopters of the idea that this is the only way to move forward. The, the, the Crown and, and the British government have uh, repeatedly violated our rights and, and have repeatedly violated our sovereignty uh, as, as Englishmen. And then there is really only one way forward, and that is, and that is separation. And, and by making that declaration or by making that decision to let's, let's act on this, I mean, there was a lot of risk that came with with putting their signatures to it, right? Yeah, yeah, that's uh, that was not something that many people, even those who did support it early on, it's not necessarily that they were uh, eager to do so. You know, they were proud uh, Englishmen. They loved their country. They loved uh, they loved the king, and they loved uh, the fact that they were Englishmen. Um, this was not necessarily a, a decision that came lightly to any of them. Um, but at the end of the day, they knew these uh, self-evident truths, as, as Jefferson so eloquently put, um, that, uh, that this was going to have to be uh, the priority, was that their liberties, uh, that was going to have to, to take precedence. Um, and Richard Henry Lee, uh, with the assistance of a fellow Virginian and Patrick Henry, when he was in the Virginia Convention, uh, sort of tag teaming with Richard Henry Lee in uh, Congress and Patrick Henry uh, in, in the Virginia Convention, they led uh, the way and they blazed the trail uh, for independence. Okay, humor me for a moment here, Caleb, because I, I want to liken this a little bit to our own situation today. Um, mm -hmm. Right now, I mean, you're in Washington, D.C. as, as we're, we're doing this, but uh, right now there, there's a lot of hostility on the part of the federal government towards the citizenry in general. I mean, to the, the extent that basically half the country is being likened to domestic extremists and terrorists and so forth. Now, if a person opposes what the politicians in power may be doing at the moment, that doesn't necessarily mean that they hate their country. And I'm, I'm going from the example of when you talk about these were proud Englishmen. They yes. weren't just miscontents who were just looking for some reason to act out. And, you know, I, I think we find ourselves in a situation where people can say, I really love my country, but I don't like what my government is doing and, and how my government, for instance, is trying to transform it. What can we learn from the way that they approach this? I mean, short of our own Declaration of Independence, what can we learn about <laughs> the way that they approached it that, uh, that really um, exhausted all alternatives? Yeah, I think uh, the thing that really stands out to me about Patrick Henry is his uh, unyielding resolve on uh, principle that he's willing to. He was he was a politician, early, uh, you know, statesman in in that sense. 
Um, and so naturally he's, he's willing to sort of negotiate and see, you know, what, what the best course of action is. But when it comes down to those, those basic fundamental truths that should govern us as a society and should govern uh, us as today Americans and his day Englishmen, uh, um, those are the things that are non-negotiable. Um, and there's different ways to go around that so long as that is the default. Uh, and he led that not just through independence, but also uh, later in life with, uh, with the Constitution during the ratification uh, convention. Um, and uh, he really led, helped, helped uh, Patrick Henry to, to lead the fight against the Constitution. It was one that he lost, but in the long run, he was able to help solidify a securing a, a bill of rights uh, to, to amend the Constitution in that sense. Um, and I think that that is sort of the takeaway in his life and, and some of the lessons that he teaches is that uh, no matter what, even if, it's, even if it may be a losing battle, it's always good to stand on that principle, especially when that principle is something as vital as, uh, as liberty. I think time has kind of vindicated the anti-federalists, too, or at least some of the concerns that they expressed uh, turn out yes. to have been pretty well placed, um, even, if, uh, even if they didn't carry the day at their time. Yes, yes, I, I completely agree. I think, um, I think that the anti-federalists were uh, very wise and uh, almost prophetic in a lot of ways uh, in, in anticipating uh, the nature of government. I think that that's really the big takeaway of, of them with Richard Henry Lee, as well as many of the other anti-federalists, were that uh, government, no matter what restrictions you put on it, has a natural tendency to try to violate those uh, restrictions and to try to grow its own authority and try to grow its own power. Um, so naturally, uh, you, you should want to put as many safeguards in place as, as possible. Uh, and I think that's that's some of the wisdom that uh, that they certainly had for that. Okay, again, we're talking with Caleb Franz from the Profiles in Liberty podcast. Uh, Caleb, tell people where they can access your podcast, where they can also follow you, and what you're up to on social media. Absolutely, uh, you can follow me on Twitter at Caleb Franz, uh, and also I have, as Brian mentioned, I have a show called Profiles in Liberty. Uh, we have two seasons out right now. I'm currently working on the third that should come out this fall, uh, and that is anywhere where you can get podcasts from. Okay, I'm going. I'm going to include a link that will uh, help take our my listeners to your podcast as well. Thanks again, Caleb, for joining me, and thanks for uh, pulling back the curtain on another piece of history that we deserve to know. Thank you, Brian. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Hey, I was going to mention that I've got some great sponsors who make this program possible on a day-to-day basis. One of those sponsors is Dr. Ward Wagner from Dixie Chiropractic. And as luck would have it, I heard from one of my oldest and dearest friends in southern Utah yesterday, and I was happy to hear that uh, he is uh, he's a regular patient of Dr. Wagner. And, uh, you know, it was fun. We were commiserating a little bit about getting older and, you know, how it's not for sissies and time and gravity are taking their toll on us. 
Well, if you or anyone you know is dealing with whether it's the you know the pains of old age or maybe some uh, some kind of adventurous misadventure, you fall off your scooter, uh, you, you fall rock climbing. Maybe you're dealing with neuropathy or or herniated discs, or maybe you've had a car accident recently. DixieChiro.com is the website you want to go to. That's the Dixie Chiropractic website. Get yourself hooked up with Dr. Wagner. They've got, they've got some wonderful intro specials to get you back on the path to, to being yourself. And that was the key. My friend says, hey, Dr. Wagner fixed me up good as new. And he was dealing with some pretty significant stuff. So there's a, there's a great recommendation uh, from, from his lips to mine to yours, to your ears, rather, DixieChiro.com. Check it out for yourself. I don't know if you have ever studied the Milgram experiment, but if you want to understand why do people why do people do what they do, especially when someone in authority is telling them to do it, even if they know that maybe it isn't the right thing to do. But if someone in authority says, well, you ought to do this, people will sometimes put aside their conscience and, and do it. Got a great article here from Thomas Harrington about how the, the Milgram experiment done back in 1961 has been restaged, but this time with millions of real victims. Check this out. Thomas Harrington says, pretty much everyone out there has some familiarity with the Milgram experiment. That's the study conducted at Yale University in 1961 under the direction of psychology professor Stanley Milgram. Now, the idea of the experiment was to test the extent to which people would be inclined to dispense with whatever moral scruples or empathetic uh, uh, instincts they may have when asked by an authority figure to inflict pain on innocent people. And to the surprise of many, well over half of the individuals, termed teachers in the experiment, tasked with enforcing the torturous will of the authority figure, termed the experimenter, on the third-party third party participants, termed students in the experiment, did so with brio and little apparent consternation. Now, all of the victims or students in the experiment were actors, but even with this being so, a seeming plurality of contemporary scholars have concluded the professor's mise en scene was unethical because he violated the prohibition against the use of deception in experiments with human subjects when he made the teachers believe they were actually meeting out pain to the students. Thomas Harrington says, you got to love the ever small bore nature academic minds, don't you? They're able to endlessly parse the possible deleterious effects of experiments on human subjects while serving on college institutional review boards, and they can engage in spirited debates about the ethics of one of the world's most famous and telling psychological experiments more than 50 years after the fact. But when it comes to using their exquisite training to look at what is, by far, the largest experiment on human subjects in history, that being lockdowns and vaccine mandates, one that clearly violates the core ethical tenets of informed consent and medical necessity, not to mention the U.S. laws governing the administration of EUA products and the EEOC guidelines on the use of coercive incentives to achieve vaccine uptake, well, then they have nothing to say. But even more troubling, if that's possible, is their widespread failure to recognize and harshly condemn what has been, in effect, the staging of a massive new version of the Milgram experiment in our time wherein government officials, the media, and medical experts actively and quite blithely encouraged the infliction of pain upon those citizens who were simply uncomfortable with being forced to take highly experimental drugs with no proven track record or safety history. 
Got a family member who actually did some homework on the injections and knew they were expected to protect, knew they were never expected to protect against transmission? Ha, huh, no problem. Ban him from Thanksgiving and all other family gatherings and suggest to others behind his back that he's gone off the deep end. Got a previously infected colleague with enough intellectual confidence to do her own research about the concept and thus see through the transparent lies spread by government agencies about the quality and duration of that protection infection and serious illness. No problem. Label her an ignorant anti-vaxxer and cheer your bosses as they show her the door for noncompliance. This, even though she is COVID-wise, probably the safest person to be near in the workplace. Do you know someone who actually read the large corpus of studies showing the rank ineffectiveness of masks as a mitigation measure among the general public? And who, in the hopes of stimulating a productive discussion, posted links to many of them on company communication channels? No problem. Hoot him down en masse and suggest quite clearly to him that if he knows what's good for him, he'll never do anything like that again. Thomas Harrington says, I could go on. The list of the ways that Milgram-like teachers who voluntarily supported the drive to inflict pain, whether it was social, financial, or otherwise, upon those with the temerity to maintain their intellectual and moral integrity in the face of a clearly manufactured crisis, is nearly infinite. But looking around today and listening to people, it's as if none of it ever happened. No significant apologies have been issued by anyone in charge. And worse yet, perhaps no one in the family and friendship circles I know of has acknowledged that what they did or or even uh, supported others to do in the way of inflicting pain. Harrington says not no one of any consequence has acknowledged, never mind apologized, for the injustice done to millions of people. I'll say that again. Millions of people who lost their livelihoods for their refusal to take an experimental drug whose performance has completely betrayed the do-it-because-we're-all-in-this-together arguments that were bullyingly deployed on its behalf. He asks, have any of the people who made this possible, either as policymakers or as corporate pain enforcers, spearheaded a move to repair the enormous damage they've inflicted on individuals and families, many of whom find themselves in financial and psychological holes from which they will never emerge? These Milgramite experimenters and teachers knew exactly what they were doing. Indeed, many of them, like our president, clearly relished initiating and firing up a stick-it-to-your-family-and-friend movement among us. Now, however, we're all supposed to forget about that because, as everyone in polite, credentialed company knows, the open expression of anger is, as you know, darling, just so de class and, and just so unseemly. At least it's mainly, maybe so. It's true that our social elites have done an awfully good job over the last 40 years of making people feel ashamed of harboring human emotion. But some of us, many more than I think they realize, have continued to give ourselves permission to access this protein force, this emotional superfood, which has always played a key role in the pursuit of justice. And we, as the Dixie Chicks sang, are not ready to make nice and not ready to back down. I've got a link to his article, uh, Thomas Harrington, writing for the Brownstone Institute. And I think he, he taps into something here that uh, that really resonates with me. And I, I hope it doesn't sound like I'm being petty or angry, but it's disturbing to me that, uh, that so much of society seems ready to just, well, let's, you know, gloss this over and let bygones be bygones. And the reason I don't think we can do this is because 
the very same playbook is being put into motion again. I mean, look, there are some things that we have learned about, for instance, COVID. We know that it surges during the winter. We know that it, uh, it took a couple of surges before it became endemic, meaning enough of it spread through the population that herd immunity began to take hold. The, the lower, I'm sorry, the later variants all were much more mild than the earlier variants. But I'm not quite ready to, to let go of some of the damage that was inflicted, especially where we've had time now and we have the, the luxury of some hindsight to look at what worked and what didn't. And I'm primarily talking about the mandates, whether it be the masks or whether it be the essential versus non-essential businesses or even the uh, you know vaccine mandates. There was a lot of crap forced on people and a lot of people who suffered when they didn't have to. And I hope it doesn't sound too vengeful, but somebody really needs to answer for this. And I mean answer in a court of law sitting there talking before a jury for what they've done. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. I want to recognize SewingAndQuiltingCenter.com, one of my great sponsors in the St. George, Utah area. Although if you live anywhere within, say, a 200-mile radius, it would be worth your time to uh, to do your business there. And uh, look look to them for your supplies. Look to them for sewing machines from entry-level machines on up to the really top-of-the-line computerized embroidery and long-arm quilting machines. They carry them all. They service them all. Whether you bought your machine from them or not, they have the technicians who can keep you going. They have the supplies to keep you happily sewing or, or creating wonderful things for years to come. And I still think one of the greatest selling points that they offer is when you buy a machine from Sewing and Quilting Center in St. George, Utah, they even offer free classes to their customers so that you can learn how to use it to its fullest potential. You'll find a link in my show notes. That's sewingandquiltingcenter.com. I never really looked forward to going to the dentist as a kid, but when we did have to go, one of the things I did enjoy as I sat there in the waiting room was reading uh, Highlights Magazine. And I still you know, laugh when someone today references Goofus and Gallant. I don't know if you remember this. Some people will recognize it. Goofus and Gallant were two little boys um, who would, would make decisions in this, uh, this uh, comic that was published by Highlights Magazine. Of course, uh, Goofus was always doing the wrong thing. Goofus would run when he was in the school hallway, whereas Gallant would walk and would obey, you know, the, the rules of the school, and the hall monitor never had to get after him. And I know it may seem kind of pedantic, but, hey, we were kids. And I don't think it's a coincidence that as kids, even though we, uh, you know, were subjected to wholesome material like this, we were the kind of people who would get offended over, say, pancake syrup, like you see people today. Michelle Malkin has a great article in intellectualtakeout.org. And I'm sad to say that Goofus and Gallant are going woke. She says, do you remember Highlights, the ubiquitous children's magazine that you'd devour at the dentist's office? If you were lucky, you'd wait for the mailman to deliver a fresh edition to your home at the beginning every, of every month. It was a treasure. The venerable American publication was established in 1946 by an enterprising married couple devoted to improving elementary education. Highlights became a staple in generations of playful and curious youngsters' lives. Its slogan was, Fun with a Purpose, 
Long before the advent of toxic social media and Silicon Valley, way back before kids were obsessing over likes and views of self-indulgent selfies of themselves, making Kardashian duck faces in their bathrooms and gyrating like Las Vegas pole dancers in their bedrooms for TikTok. Grade readers, grade school readers rather, had healthy addictions to the wholesome trademark features of Highlight. Who can forget spending hours hunting down the cleverly camouflaged objects in hidden pictures? Dang it, where was that boomerang? Did you sit outside in the summer sunshine like like she says seven-year-old uh, Michelle Malkin did, unplugged and carefree, poring over the nonsensical scenes in the colorful What's Wrong artwork puzzle on the back cover of your well-worn copy of the magazine? Wait, how did you miss the dog riding the bicycle backward? Now she says, raise your hand if you memorized the knock-knock jokes or giggled at goofus and gallant and begged your mom to buy pipe cleaners and popsicle sticks for the magazine's craft projects. Feeling nostalgic? Well, Michelle Malkin says you're not alone. Highlights delivered its billionth copy to a Texas schoolgirl back in 2006 and marked its 75th anniversary last summer in a, with publication reach in more than 40 countries. Highlights became an American tradition by respecting and inculcating tradition. In its early days, editors incorporated Bible stories without controversy or backlash, Depictions of traditional nuclear families were normal, and normality was celebrated, not shunned. Highlights was also founded as an advertising-free sanctuary from incessant commercialization by sugary cereal companies, big pharma, toy makers, or other promotional predators. Most importantly, the 44-page bookness of silliness was a protected space from partisan political pollution. Its side lessons on right and wrong were unobjectionable. Hey, did you see Goofus refuse to hold the door open for his grandma? Rude! Parents could trust their authority would not not be mocked or their values undermined. Well, Michelle Malkin reports those days are long gone. In 2017, after being mow-mowed by left-wing alphabet activists on Facebook who wanted pro-gay propaganda included in the magazine's special edition for children two years old and under, highlights featured a cartoon with a same-sex couple and two children packing their wagon for a family trip. Now, initially, the editors resisted the call to capitulate because they believed that parents know best when to introduce such topics to their children. But all it took were hysterical, radioactive accusations of homophobia for the magazine to fold. And like every other modern institution, masquerading as a champion of children, the editors of Highlights now believe their primary obligation is not to respect traditional parents, but to replace them. So reflecting the diversity of family, of families rather, means in-your-face proselytizing to celebrate pride, which includes highlights-endorsed books that expose preschoolers as young as three years old to gender identity and transition. The highlights pride book list includes titles such as the transgender-promoting I Am Jazz for four-year-olds and Prince and Knight, in which the protagonists find true love in a most unexpected place so as to accelerate LGBTQ inclusivity and acceptance. Can't tie your shoes yet or finish a word search, but hey, kids, it's time to accelerate your acceptance of toddler cross-dressing, transgender hormone therapy, and two-man love scenes. Fun with a purpose has given way to dreadful wokeification programming and virtue signaling. Highlights Magazine editors remained silent in 2014 while the Obama administration separated illegal alien families at the borders and held some children in cages, but made a splash in 2019 condemning the same practices when the Trump administration tried to stem the tide. Now, the magazine's current crusading chief purpose officer, Christine French Culley, 
is a COVID-19 fear spreader who uses the magazine to condition kids to accept mask mandates despite their limited effectiveness in lowering COVID-19 transmission and detrimental effect on childhood brain development. Coley's Twitter feed reads like the daily talking points diary of a B-list MSNBC guest, decrying guns, pushing dialogue with children about climate change, and peddling ways to talk to our kids about Ukraine. Michelle Malkins' last week Falcon School District 49 board member, Ivy Liu, posted a recent highlights lesson titled, I feel upset about racism. What should I do? The editor's anti-racism book list makes clear that embracing anti-white critical race theory is the only possible solution. Liu is leading a lonely battle against the so-called social-emotional learning-saturating D49 classrooms and highlights materials as well, and has even been censured by colleagues for calling out corrupted curriculum. Is this what they mean by making social justice warriors out of our kids? Liu asks. Indeed. Michelle Malkin says, it won't be long now before Goofus and Gallander dancing at Drag Queen Story Hour and the Timbertoes are forced to pay reparations for slavery. She says, end stage America never looked so grim, perverse, and joyless. I think it's sad, too. And, you know, maybe that's just nostalgia that's at work, you know, because I, I remember highlights being wholesome. I didn't think of it in terms of wholesome. I just thought of it in terms of, oh, well, it was fun. And there was never any sense of, uh, you know, a, a battle for my mind other than, you know, Goofus and Gallant, I think, actually imparted some pretty good lessons on right and wrong. And we could even, you know, tongue in cheek, yeah, Goofus and Gallant, you know, it was subtle there. That's really subtle, you know, how we name these guys. So maybe this leaves us wondering a little bit, OK, well, what kind of books can we enjoy? What what can we share with our kids that's actually beneficial and isn't trying to win them over to one ideological side or another. I'm going to recommend a book series that I suspect some of you have heard about, maybe you've enjoyed, but maybe a lot of people may not be familiar with. It's the Little Britches series by Ralph Moody. Now, this is an autobiographical book about Ralph growing up as a young boy. And in particular, I believe this was probably around the turn of the 20th century. Um, he and his family lived on a farm. He, he talks about uh, working with cowboys. He talks about, you know, some of his misadventures, some of the lessons he learned for, you know, about honesty and about responsibility. As I recall, his dad died when he was pretty young. And Ralph and his mom and his sister had to make do. But they're tremendously entertaining books. And they actually teach what a functional family does. Not some mythical, you know, perfect family who always is smiling and no one ever has a bad case of acne. But real world problems that they faced. And this is just one series. I'm sure there are plenty of others out there. You can get the book on tape. I found that uh, one of the best things that we ever did for our kids was we found uh, the little series Britches as audiobooks. And whenever we would travel, and we, we traveled quite a bit, especially when my older kids were, were little, uh, we traveled back and forth between southern Utah and southern Idaho. So we had a good seven or eight hour drive ahead of us, and we would just let that play for hours. By the way, that was some of the most enjoyable traveling, especially if we, if we took the Nevada route, where the scenery is, shall we say, um, less than uh, eye-catching in a lot of places. It's just sagebrush and lots of it. <laughs> but the kids loved it. They'd sit there and hang on every word, every story. So, yeah, there's still a lot of wholesome material out there. It's just not what the mainstream or what social media happens to be peddling. 
But I do agree with Michelle Malkin. If you don't recognize the battle for your child's mind, it's time to open your eyes and see it for what it is. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Welcome back to the show. I want to thank LifesavingFood.com for being a sponsor of this program. There's a link in my show notes at TheBrianHydeShow.com. Click on that. You can do a little bit of shopping. Assuming you see something that you need, maybe jump on it. You know, just so you can have that wonderful sense of preparedness. So I want to talk a little bit about uh, what it what it means to 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 recognize that uh, there's a problem and to recognize that you are part of the solution. See, I think most of us really are willing to stand up for what's good and what's right, but I also suspect that there's a very large percentage of people who recognize the problem and say, "Ooh, somebody needs to do something," and 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 they're feeling less than qualified to be the one who does something, or or they're probably more likely is, "I think I can do something, but I'm not sure what," or I know I want to do something. I'm just waiting for the right time or for someone to give me permission. Now is the time to act. I want you to hear what J.B. Shirk says about uh, if you're reading this, you're ready to resist tyranny. He starts out with words like Great Reset, Green New Deal, Build Back Better, New World Order, Bilderberger, Davos, Council on Foreign Relations, World Health Organization. The list of secretive global societies and their mission directives for humanity are daunting. Many people who prefer to be left alone to live their lives free from government interference have an understandable sense of impending doom. Shirk says the COVID crisis showed Westerners how quickly and easily their governments would impose unilateral mandates against their will, destroying any illusion that self-congratulating democracies have any more respect for individual rights or bodily autonomy than the authoritarian regimes the West routinely condemns. He says if an unsuspecting citizen once took freedom for granted, forced experimental injections, arbitrary and capricious capricious closures of private businesses, mass surveillance, vaccine passports, and government-sponsored censorship of dissenting medical opinion, have demonstrated how rapidly undefended freedom slips away. Westerners were not prepared to take a vigorous stand for freedom of speech, freedom of movement, freedom of conscience, or personal privacy. Their silence was interpreted as acquiescence to government control and rewarded with only more intrusive and authoritarian measures. Now, for those who understand what has happened these last two-plus years, the rise of authoritarianism has caused a great deal of consternation. All around us, the government government leviathan is feeding and growing. Center for Disease Control bureaucrats are already defending their unconstitutional pandemic powers as necessary tools that should be permanently institutionalized. The U.S. government openly targets citizens for engaging in unacceptable speech or holding unapproved political views. Stricter gun laws are barreling towards us. The national security surveillance state is pervasive. Treasury and finance ministers are working with their central banks to devise digital currencies for the public that will eventually allow them to sequester citizens' accounts in ways just as bereft of due process as those utilized by the rules-based international order to seize Russia's foreign currency reserves as punishment for invading Ukraine. The Davos death cult is using the pretense of a climate emergency 
to justify tracking every individual's personal carbon consumption. In other words, surveilling and cataloging all human movements, sources of income, associations, and experiences. Biden's commie house of horrors is intentionally unleashing runaway inflation so that citizens become entirely dependent upon government for personal survival. Even a cursory glance at humanity's chessboard then reveals that those with wealth and power are racing to corral the rest of us before we appreciate what's at stake. And he says what's at stake is nothing short of a great human battle between good and evil, that pitting individual self-determination against corrosive government authority. Personal sovereignty versus state enslavement. Moral agency versus ideological imprisonment. Private ownership of one's own labor versus feudal subsistence as a serf. Freedom versus control. It's that simple. Technology has finally advanced to, a, advanced to a point where true totalitarianism may flourish. Total control over the individual means total control over the thoughts in each person's mind. That makes sense, right? Our thoughts, not our physical features, make us who we are and direct our future actions. If authoritarian technocrats wish to create a matrix-type world in which the masses are kept weak, ignorant, and subdued, it's our thoughts that they must regulate. At the foundational level of all human thought is how we individually process the observable information around us. So, information is an observable input. Our minds process that information and form preferences. Our preferences lead to actions and outcomes in the observable world. And some of our actions provide new observable information inputs for others, and the steps begin all over again. Totalitarianism seeks to hijack this natural human process by limiting the availability of information inputs, whether through censorship, physical imprisonment, or mandatory state ideology. The goal is to control human action by limiting the available information used to form preferences. That's one of the better explanations I've seen, by the way. Now, J.B. Shirk says, in this regard, Congress's January 6th committee and Department of Justice's persecution of Trump supporters for their political beliefs is a classic attempt by the government to control society not at all different than the Soviets' use of gulags or the Nazis' use of concentration camps. The purpose is to silence certain people in society so that their thoughts are kept from spreading to others. If people were to actually hear the message of those protesters at the U.S. Capitol, that the 2020 presidential election was a total fraud and an extension of the deep state's four-year running coup against President Trump, the American people might actually demand new elections. Even more dangerously, publicly voiced inputs of information questioning the legitimacy of the federal bureaucracy's permanent power over the American people might lead more and more Americans to demand revolutionary changes to an inherently corrupt system. If D.C. throws the righteous in prison, silences their voices, and defames their good names, well, then uh, fewer Americans will hear their message or learn from it. When thoughts are understood as inputs that can spread, then it's easy to see why governments have an incentive to keep us isolated from from each other. Locking people down in their homes uh, to under the guise of viral pandemics or urgent climate change emergencies strengthens government's ability to monitor what information we learn. If freedom of association is outlawed and citizens kept apart, then information normally exchanged through human interaction disappears. If government agents control social media platforms and corporate do- corporate news, then they control our information inputs. 
Our preferences and potential actions are constrained by government's monopoly over what we learn. For two years, most of us have experienced some version of this tactic. And although it's been quite real for us, it has mostly been a practice run for more rigid control down the road. So J.B. Shirk says, what have we learned during this authoritarian practice run? In its efforts to control the population by first regulating our thoughts, those in power execute a simple strategy. Number one, the state will first appeal to expert opinion to begin any new cycle of control measures. We have no choice but to lock down because the virologists or epidemiologists or climate science gurus say we must. Number two, the state will declare all emergencies exceptions to its constitutional obligations to protect citizens' natural rights and liberties. We have no time to worry about anyone's free speech, religious beliefs, or need to make a living, or free will. This is an emergency overriding those beliefs, or those duties, rather. Number three, the state will seize control over information available on the Internet and broadcast by corporate news. Experts have warned that this emergency is too serious to allow citizens access to disinformation, and therefore our narrative is the only one legally allowed. Number four, the state will quick, quickly crush dissent with grinding punishment. In order to fight disinformation, medical and law licenses of unauthorized voices will be suspended, bank accounts of protesters seized, and uncooperative citizens arrested. So you control the inputs, you control the future, right? Well, J.B. Shirk says, not if the people who use this authoritarian practice run as an opportunity learn from their oppressors. If we use this as a chance to learn from our oppressors, I guess is what he's saying here. When the ruling class underestimates the people's ability to learn and see through their plans, then their hubris becomes their Achilles heel. When the people open their eyes to the systems of control imposed upon them, no censor, no jailer or media mouthpiece can continue regulating their thoughts. You break the state's control over information, you break the state's totalitarian machine. It's a little like the memorable movie line from one of the Terminator movies. If you're reading this, then you are the resistance. I think there's also the mindset that a lot of people have of waiting for permission. Right? Because we're good people. We're not just going to go out there and act on our own like some rogue or some renegade. But you have to understand, and maybe you get this by now. The people who are doing their best to oppress and control you are never going to give you permission to stand up to them. They're never going to give you permission to disobey. They're never going to give you permission to free yourself. That's a decision that you and I have to make all by our lonesomes. The good news is once you make that decision, once you have committed to it, everything becomes a whole lot easier. So I wish you luck. This is The Brian Hyde Show. A trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. I probably don't have to tell you this, but I am going to point out we live in a time of immense deceit and distortion of reality. As in, it takes serious effort, like real, concentrated, conscious effort to see things as they really are. 
and not be blinded by the uh, blizzard of propaganda that's swirling around us pretty much 24-7. This program exists not to tell you what to think, but to encourage you to think as clearly and independently as possible. Now, that means you're going to disagree with me at times, and I'm totally okay with that. In fact, you may, at any point, you are free to say, you know what, nope, that's not for me, and to uh, turn me off. And I'm not even going to take offense, because I also understand the message I have is not for everyone. It's, it's for people who are placing a higher value on truth than they are on personal comfort. And, you know, the truth of the matter is, there just aren't that many people right now who are in that state of mind. But my promise to you is this. I will be gentle when you do come to that point where you're like, no, okay, I want to know more. I'm not going to wave my finger in, my, in your face. Nah, nah, told you so. I will welcome you with open arms and do my best to share with you the best information I can find in the hopes that it will uh, bring you a little bit closer to understanding the world around us, but more importantly, understanding the impact that you can have to improve that world, even in small ways, but nonetheless ways that make it a better place. In fact, I'm going to... I'm going to get a little bit philosophical here for just a second because I, I had a conversation with a friend. I, I haven't spoken to this friend since, uh, wow, it's probably been close to eight years, and I cannot believe that much time has gone by. But uh, it was a, a friend who um, years ago I had become acquainted with and, and become pretty close to, and uh, this friend had gone through some really difficult times. And, you know, I'm talking divorce and things like this, just some, some really serious life challenges. And uh, this friend had reached out to me and uh, we, you know, caught up on, on what was happening in one another's lives. And, you know, um, it's interesting because uh, I have thought about this guy for, for several years. In fact, he's crossed my mind a number of times just in the last few months because he was the person who taught me the difference between just cruising through life on cruise control. You know, yeah, 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 everything's going pretty good. I'm just coasting along here, but not really having to put effort into um, being a good person or being the best person that I can be. In other words, I was okay to settle for good enough. I'm good enough, you know, I'm I'm, I'm good, but I'm not great, or I'm, I'm not that bad, or at least, I, you know, my, my, the things that I need to improve on aren't so bad that I really need to be spending a lot of time obsessing over them. And I remember him telling me, and, and this is, I'm, I'm going to relate it in kind of a spiritual sense, but, but I think you'll see this applies to other areas of our lives. He says there's a, there's a world of difference between someone who's actually striving, for instance, to, to get closer to God Versus someone who's like, yeah, 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 I believe in God. I appreciate God. I, you know, I, I see God in my life, you know, and, and I, I totally recognize that's, that's one of those instances where we kind of get in cruise control, you know, and, and we typically do this when things are comfortable, right? It's like the most sincere prayers that you have ever offered probably came at a moment of real crisis, I know that's true for me, standing there with a tornado, you know, ripping things apart, you know, in, in full view of me and, and really having nowhere to go for shelter. You better believe that was one of the most sincere prayers I've ever offered in my life. I felt the same way when um, someone's life is in jeopardy, someone's suffering from a severe illness or there's an emergency that's cropped up. I'm talking that's that's when my intent and my focus and and uh, humility before God was was at its absolute zenith because it counted. 
But when things are going okay, you know what our attitude usually is? It's like, oh, no, I got this. I got this. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna bother him. You know, I'm not gonna bother the Almighty with with my little concerns. And I bring this up because I think we miss some great opportunities to really see and seize some of the best things in our lives. And so I've, I've thought about my friend's uh, description of what it's like to really strive. And, and, and I want to share one other, one other uh, thing that, that he pointed out, too. And I don't share this with you because I am such a good guy. You know, this is, this is not a flex on my part. But uh, my friend thanked me for simply being there for him um, at a time when he was really going through, through, through some serious difficulty. And, and I remember, I remember one time um, I was aware that, uh, that he was going through some tough times. And, uh, and, and I remember just having this inkling of, you know, I wonder if he could just use, you know, some encouragement. And, and I don't, I'm not a counselor, right? I don't, I don't have any, you know, answers to anything. But I remember feeling the impression, you got to give him a call. Just, just ask him how he's doing. And so I did. I picked up the phone and just called and said, hey, man, just was thinking about you and I just wanted to see how you were doing. And for the next five minutes, all I could hear on the other end of the phone was was sobs. I mean, he was really going through a tough time. Maybe some of you can relate. Maybe some of you have never been at, at that kind of a you know crisis point in your life. But this is the thing I want to, to share with you. I didn't know how difficult things were for him. And picking up the phone and calling to check on him. Really? I mean, did you do anything substantive? Well, no, I just called and asked how he was doing. But my friend told me that to him, that call came at a time when he was very actively pleading with God. To to give him strength, to, to... to show him something that would indicate that, look, I, I'm aware of what's going on, and I'm here for you. And he says that phone call was an answer to his prayers. Now, I didn't know that. And that's not the intent for, for why I call. I'm, I'm going to be an answer to his prayer, you know. Um, this is something I just, you know, kind of, I learned about this uh, yesterday in my conversation with him. And it really hit me. How many times do we have opportunities like this? Or just something simple, something that seemingly is is so insignificant. I'm going to pick up the phone and I'm going to call somebody because I'm just wondering how they're doing or I'm, I'm worried about them. When that happens and when, when someone reaches out and it's not just a matter of, oh, look, you know, somebody made my phone ring, but it's actually recognized as that's evidence of God's love for me. And it's arriving through someone else, you know, through another person who's helping to make that happen. I know this may sound confusing and I'm probably just I'm probably just babbling here, but it hit my heart so hard to hear about this. And and I want you to understand, I've had similar experiences in my life where I was like, man, I am at the end of my rope. And I'm really intently reaching out to God going, what can I do? What can I do? And someone, out of the blue, calls up and says, little brother, why are you on my mind today? Are you okay? 
And like my friend, you know, I recognized that call was not just some cosmic coincidence. That was, that was evidence that we have a greater ally than we realize. So I'm going to talk about some, uh, some pretty, you know, discouraging stuff today. I have some, some information to share with you that, uh, that spells out and, and helps to clarify, you know, the weight of the challenge in front of us. But I wanted to get this out there first and foremost, just to remind you that things seem pretty bleak in many ways. I mean, I, every time I, I have this obsession now when I'm driving by a gas station, I'm looking at the, you know, the prices and just, saying, oh, man, it's up another dime. Oh, it's up another nickel or whatever. And it's it's discouraging, but it's like a train wreck. I can't look away from it. Economically, I feel the pressure is building and I, and I have a sense that ooh, things are about to get real. Culturally, we are in a dark, dark place, and it's getting worse. It's intensifying in ways I don't think any of us anticipated. And my point is it can feel hopeless. And if there was ever a time for us to to stop cruising along on cruise control and to put some real intent into uh, understanding and seeking out the divine, this is that time. Because once you have that recognition, once you understand that the creator of the universe isn't too busy to stop what he's doing and actually, you know, love you and care about you, suddenly all of the bad stuff is a lot easier to bear. All the discomfort is easier to endure. I'm sorry, you probably didn't tune in for a Sunday school lesson, but gotta tell you that conversation with my friend really had an impact on me and it happens in ways that are not immediately obvious to us and i guess that's the point be kind get right with your creator and watch for good things to happen this is the brian hyde show this is the Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. The Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage is one of my premier sponsors on this program and actually has been for a long time. I think Heather's been on board the longest of all. And if you are looking for a mortgage, if you're anywhere in the state of Utah or the state of Idaho, Heather Turner and her team at Patriot Home Mortgage are there to help you You can give her a call at 435-703-4522. Her NMLS ID is 715386. Now, if you're in St. George, Utah, you can actually go right to her office at 619 South Bluff Street. And Patriot Home Mortgage is an equal housing opportunity lender. So, it's not just the political power seekers who uh, pose a threat to our liberties. I'm not watching the January 6th committee. Um... You know, if I want to watch a good drama, I'll find something, you know, under that category, you know, on on Hulu or whatever. I don't need to see a bunch of political actors, you know, out there grandstanding in front of the cameras. But I saw the most excellent article by Ryan McMacken from the Mises Institute. And it really points out one of the big problems we have is not the elected officials out there preening for the cameras and always, you know, Uh, hankering for a little bit more power and a little more control over our lives. There are a lot of unelected experts who wield vast power. And it turns out over the last couple of years, we've seen the kind of damage that can be done when those experts 
get hungry for a little bit more power. Ryan McMacken says in 21st century America, ordinary people are at the mercy of well-paid, unelected government experts who wield vast power. That is, we live in the age of the technocrats, people who claim to have special wisdom that entitles them to control, manipulate, and manage society's institutions using the coercive power of the state. Well, now we're told these people are non-political and will use their impressive scientific knowledge to plan the economy, public health, public safety, or whatever goal the regime has decided the technocrats will be tasked with bringing about. Now, here's the kicker. These people include central bankers, Supreme Court justices, public health bureaucrats, and Pentagon generals. And the narrative is that these people are not there to represent the public or bow to political pressure. They're just there to do the right thing as dictated by economic theory, biological sciences, legal theory, or the study of military tactics. He says, we're also told that in order to allow these people to act as the purely well-meaning apolitical geniuses they are, we must give them their independence and not question their methods or conclusions. Now, we were exposed to this routine yet again last week, as President Joe Biden announced he'll respect the Fed's independence and allow the central bankers to set monetary policy without any bothersome interference from the representatives of the taxpayers who pay all the bills and who primarily pay the price when central bankers make things worse. Now, Biden, of course, didn't mention central bankers have been spectacularly wrong about the inflation threat in recent years, with inflation rates hitting 40-year highs, economic growth going negative, and consumer credit piling up as families struggle to cope with the cost of living. By the way, just as an aside... A friend sent me a chart of credit card debt and what has been going on as far as the trend of of people using their credit cards and going deeper and deeper into credit card debt. I'm trying to remember this, but I, I believe what the chart showed was we have hit the highest point of consumer credit debt ever. There's never been a time more people have been living off credit cards or stacking up that credit debt than right this moment. Make of that what you will, but I don't think that's good news. Now, conveniently, Ryan McMacken says, Biden's deferral to the Fed allows him to blame it later when economic conditions get even worse. Nonetheless, his placing the economy in the hands of alleged experts will no doubt appear laudable to many. This is because the public has long been taught by public schools and media outlets that the government experts should have the leeway to exercise vast power in the name of fixing whatever problems society faces. Sounds about right. Now, the success of this idea represents a great victory for progressive ideology. Progressives have long been committed to creating a special expert class as a means of building state power. In the United States, for example, the cult of expertise really began to take hold in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. And it led directly to more government intervention in the private sector. As Maureen Flanagan notes in Progressives and Progressivism, in an era of reform, quote, Social science expertise gave political progressives a theoretical foundation for cautious proposals to create a more activist state. Professional social scientists comprised a tight circle of men who created a space between academia and government from which to advocate for reform. They addressed each other, trained their students to follow their ideas, and rarely spoke to the larger public. End quote. Now, Ryan McMacken says these men founded new organizations such as the American Economics Association to promote this new class of experts and their plans for a more centrally planned society. Ultimately, the nature of the expert class was revolutionary. The new social scientists thought they knew better than the patricians, religious leaders, local representatives and market actors 
who had long shaped local institutions. Instead, quote, progressives were modernizers with structural instrumentalist agenda. They rejected reliance on older values and cultural norms in order to order to order society rather and to and sought to create a modern reordered society with political and economic institutions run by men qualified to apply fiscal expertise, business-like efficiency, and modern scientific expertise to solve problems and save democracy. Sounds familiar, right? The emerging academic disciplines in the social sciences of economics, political economy, and political science and pragmatic education supplied the theoretical basis for this middle-class expert progressivism. End quote. So Ryan McMacken says the progressive impulse for expertise-based rule was perhaps exemplified by the progressive transportation planner Emery Johnson, who advocated for a strong federal executive branch that would be resistant to political pressure while relying on the supposedly scientific judgments of government planners and other bureaucrats. Johnson explicitly took up the question of the role of expertise in the American state. He maintained that success relied upon what he termed executive functions. He sought to empower the, the federal government's executive branch as experts' natural home. Now, McMacken says in the progressive view, business leaders and machine politicians lacked a rational and broad view of the needs of society. In contrast, the government experts would approach society's problems as scientists. Johnson felt this model already somewhat existed in the Department of War, where Johnson imagined the Secretary of War was quite free from political pressure and relied on the counsel of the engineers. Johnson imagined that the science-minded bureaucrats could bring a really economic and scientific application of policy. Now, Johnson was part of a wave of experts and intellectuals attempting to develop a new realm of state expertise that favored apolitical technocrats who would plan the nation's infrastructure and industry. Many historians have recognized that these efforts were fundamentally state-building activities and that their emergence marked and symbolized a watershed in which an often undemocratic new politics of administration and interest groups displaced the 19th century's partisan, locally-oriented public life. In short, these efforts sowed the seeds for the idealized technocracy we have today, unresponsive to the public and imbued with vast coercive power that continually displaces private discretion and private prerogatives. Indeed, he says the progressive devotion to expertise followed the core pattern of progressive politics, which is the redirection of decision-making upward within bureaucracies. Thus, in contrast to the populist political institutions of an earlier time, decision-making in the progressive era became much more white-collar, more middle-class as opposed to working-class party workers, and more hierarchical within bureaucracies directly controlled by the state's executive agencies. It brings us to the question of, well, who should rule? And after the break, we're going to come back to this, and I'll share a little bit more of Ryan McMacken's article. Now, I do have a link to this in my show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. I would encourage you, if you haven't already subscribed, and again, this is on the idea that if you're serious about studying these things out, you want to go into greater depth, you want to look at my show notes, because I put the links in there to these various articles, and those articles themselves often contain supplementary links and their sources. That's why I choose them as, you know, as content to share with you, because I believe they are well-researched, they're well-sourced, and based in principle more so than partisan considerations. So if you'd like to subscribe to my show notes, all you have to do is drop me your email 
Just go to my show notes at thebrianheidshow.com. The subscribe button's down there at the bottom of the page. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Welcome back to the show. I want to thank HSLAmmo.com for being one of my sponsors. I've actually had uh, the founder of HSL Ammo on my program. That's Spencer Worthington. Not only is he a great businessman who's created a lot of opportunity and creates a very, very uh, usable product, new and remanufactured ammunition, but uh, he has created so much opportunity for workers there in the St. George area. Um, what a great guy. And, and, and I, I want to get him back on the show because uh, Spencer is one of those people who is a living example of get it done. He's a can-do kind of guy, and, and he's, he's experienced some pretty daunting hardships in his life and overcome them and learned some great lessons along the way. And, you know, rather than, than uh, you know, getting puffed up or, or, you know, taking a victim mentality, he does what he can to share that with other people. That's what I love about the guy. And some of his thoughts on frugality and financial independence are really worthwhile. So I will get him back on the show. But in the meantime, you could do me a favor by doing business with HSLAmmo.com. So back to this article by, uh, by Ryan McMacken from the Mises Institute about why progressives love government experts and how government experts are used as a means to build state power. And it comes to the question of who should rule. And in this case, he says, uh, Ryan McMacken says, this aspect of pro- progressive ideology in many ways has turned the political agenda of laissez-faire classical liberalism on its head. Now, liberals of the Jeffersonian and Jacksonian variety had sought to increase outside political influence in the policymaking process through elections and the appointment of party activists loyal to elected representatives. And this was because liberals feared that an insulated class of government experts would function more in its own interests than those of the taxpayers. Well, turns out they were right, huh? <laughs> the progressives, however, imagined they could create a disinterested, non-political class of experts devoted only to objective science. So the fundamental question then became who should rule, insulated experts or non-expert representatives with closer ties to the taxpayers? Now, McNacken says we can see today that the progressives largely succeeded in granting far greater power to today's technocratic class of experts. The technocrats are praised for their allegedly scientific focus, and we're told to respect their independence. Now, if the goal was ever to protect public checks on state power, however, this was always an unworkable ideal. By creating a special class of expert bureaucrats with decades-long careers within the regime itself, we're simply creating a new class of officials able to wield state power with little accountability. Anyone with a sufficiently critical view of state power could see the danger in this. In fact, interestingly, it was anarcho-communist Mikhail Bakunin who recognized the impossibility of solving the problem of state power by putting scientific experts in charge. Such a move only represented the transfer of power from one group to another. Bakunin warned the state has always been the patrimony of some privileged class or other, a priestly class, an aristocratic class, a bourgeois class, and finally, a bureaucratic class. That bureaucratic, uh, though, moreover, those state bureaucratic efforts to plan society from the center 
Bakunin said it this way, will demand an immense knowledge and many heads overflowing with brains in this government. It will be the reign of scientific intelligence, the most aristocratic, despotic, arrogant, and contemptuous of all regimes. There will be a new class, a new hierarchy of real and pretended scientists and scholars. End quote. So Ryan McMacken says it's not necessary, of course, to have full-blown socialism to create this new class. The modern state, with its mixed economy in most cases, already has all the bureaucratic infrastructure necessary to make this a reality. And as long as we defer to this ruling class of scientists and scholars, the progressives have won. I guess this is one of the reasons why I'm such a stickler against credentialism. And I know there are some people who will throw around their credentials. Do you know what I am? You may refer to me as doctor and whatever. Look, I, I have great respect for people who have knowledge. But if they're simply using that knowledge for the sake of accruing greater personal power or control over other people, yeah, I'm not going to play that game. And I'm not going to defer to their authority. I mean, we've all seen the meme, don't confuse your Google search with my medical degree. And there's a degree of truth to that. You know, it's, you know, I, I, can, I can respect that someone's taken a lot of time to learn something. However, don't mistake your medical degree for authority to trump my personal sovereignty and my autonomy. Because I understand what those things are. I understand why they matter. And it's my choice. I'll just use the, the vaccine mandates, for instance. Doctors can recommend things. They can try to persuade things. But when they start trying to force things on people or they support coercive measures that would force people to do things that they're otherwise not convinced they should do, that's crossing a line. I know it seems simplistic, but if you can't persuade people to embrace something, you've got to work on your persuasion or you've got to work on on your message. If you've got to resort to force or the threat of force in order to coerce people to do something, if you've got to make them do the right thing, you might as well be enticing them to do the wrong thing. Both approaches are equally unethical. And besides, you know, if you're you're trying to affect some kind of change, the only kind of change that really matters is the kind that comes about voluntarily because people have seen the light and said, I can agree with that, and I choose to go in this direction. It's like my friend Connor Boyack used to say, if you, uh, if you try to tell me that the sky is green and I say, no, it's blue, and you just beat me over the head with an umbrella, say it's, say it's green, say it's green. I may eventually say it's green, but it doesn't mean the sky is green. It means I just would rather that you stop beating me over the head, and I'm doing what I can to get you to stop. At any rate, I've got a link to this in the show notes. I hope you'll check it out. I, on this note, too, I want to just point out, this is uh, an article from Kit Knightley from off-guardian.org. Monkeypox is following the COVID playbook step by step. Because right now the experts are getting ready to try out to more lockdowns and more, you know, of the, the same thing that we saw over the last couple of years. And Kit Knightley's warning, that sense of deja vu, you're, you're seeing things for what they are. Kit says, monkeypox is back in the headlines as of yesterday, back to work after a short break. It burst onto the front pages with concomitant big red numbers and daily case updates a couple of weeks ago and then then went quiet. The press pretty much stopped talking about it until they started again. 
And yesterday it was reported that UK Health Security Agency uh, has upgraded monkeypox to a notifiable disease, meaning any positive test must immediately be reported to the government agency. Ever one for subtly, subtlety, rather, the Telegraph's front page reports this as monkeypox upgraded to the same level as leprosy and the plague. Well, that'll put the fear in some people. Across the pond, Kit says, the U.S. CDC has made the curiously synchronized decision to increase their travel alert on monkeypox to level two, which recommends people practice enhanced precautions. But Kit Knightley says, let's be clear here, this monkeypox outbreak is a joke. Anyone taking any of this seriously after the last two years of COVID hysteria needs a major reality check. At this point, you should be assuming that any disease outbreak is a hoax until proven otherwise. Really proven, not trust me, I'm an expert proven. For those who haven't gotten to that stage yet, consider all the ways that monkeypox is following the exact same path as COVID. Number one, the monkeypox outbreak was predicted by an exercise a few months before it happened. Yeah, just like COVID. Number two, we've seen the narrative reinforced by rumors it's a bioweapon. And these accusations have gone both ways, with Western press saying monkeypox is a Russian bioweapon, and Chinese rumors claiming it was deliberately released by the U.S., just like COVID. Number three, we're seeing institutions revising history in order to inflate the potential threat of the disease, just like COVID. Number four, monkeypox is being diagnosed with a PCR test. These tests are going to become more widely available as test makers seize the new market and governments plan to ramp up testing. Increased testing with an unreliable test could artificially inflate cases and feed the panic, just like COVID. And number five, the monkeypox narrative is being pushed by countries on both sides of the new Cold War, just like COVID. So they're already resorting to a new variant headline that wasn't a thing for COVID for almost a year. Is this due to desperation or impatience? Who can say? But there must be some reason for the accelerated timeline. They're even trying to bring masks back into style by claiming monkeypox may have become airborne. And of course, the biggest similarity in the, is the, in the solution, vaccines. It's already been decided that vaccines originally designed for smallpox work for monkeypox too, and that they're the best way to stop the spread of the disease. Meanwhile, the monkeypox story over its science is... As monkeypox threat grows, scientists debate best vaccine strategy. See, it seems the experts can't decide between a ring vaccination where you vaccinate every close contact of a confirmed monkeypox case or a broader vaccination campaign. Gee, I wonder which one they'd be likely to go for. No, they don't debate whether or not we need a vaccine strategy at all. So, pay attention here. It's so predictable, the people in charge expect us to believe it, and the worst part is some people actually will. I'll have a link to Kit Knightley's article in my show notes. You can check it out for yourself at thebrianheidshow.com. We'll be back in just a moment. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Welcome back to the show. Just want to take a moment here to recognize the sponsors who make this program available on a daily basis, including Dixie Chiropractic, HSL Ammo, Sewing and Quilting Center, MonticelloCollege.org, LifesavingFood.com, GovernYourCrypto.com, and the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. 
Well, I came across another gem from Kent McManigle, one of my favorite writers who's featured very prominently at everythingvoluntary.com. And uh, Kent is uh, pointing out uh, that, you know, the Congress's current motivation uh, to burden us with more gun laws is not going to actually solve problems. Here's how he puts it. He says, senseless aggression toward innocent victims enrages me, no matter who's harmed or who commits the act. But to intentionally harm children or to target children, he says, rage doesn't even begin to describe what he feels. So he asks, are you ready for some hard truth? Some of you are. Those who aren't should probably read the comics instead. The truth is this. You'll never stop crime with new legislation and harsher enforcement. You'll never even reduce crime that way. He says, in fact, even if you imagine this tactic would prevent some crimes, you'll have to ignore all the crimes it unintentionally causes directly, which it will do. No legislation only affects the bad guys. It affects those who generally try to obey the rules much more, which has a negative effect. What good is making up some legislation that prevents one crime if it causes five other crimes that wouldn't have happened otherwise? If it saves one life is the mantra of activists who wear blinders. And he says, knee-jerk legislation giving government added power created under the stress of tragedy, tragedy rather, is never a good idea. It always works out badly, having devastating unintended consequences down the line. We're seeing the unintended consequences of that kind of legislation happen now, while politicians and activists are theatrically trying to place the blame where it doesn't belong. His point is people can't be forced to be good or responsible. You can't improve society through authoritarian tyranny. Turning society into prison is never the right thing to do, even if you imagine safety will be the result. All that will happen is you'll contribute to making things worse for everyone, not better. Yet it's what politicians want to do, and it's what the loudest activists demand from them. It's not common sense in any sense of the phrase, but anti-liberty politicians hope you won't realize it. Ken McManigal says, what you can do is decide to be responsible. Decide to be part of the solution, regardless of what rules are imposed on you. Now, this is where the rubber meets the road, and he says, don't comply. Don't let anyone make you feel bad about refusing to go along with your own enslavement. Understanding, respecting, and exercising liberty does not make you a bad person. What they want to do to you, what they intend to do to you, makes them the bad guys. Their political acts will guarantee crimes like this continue to happen again and again. You know it. Don't let them forget it and show them you aren't fooled by their easy and popular lies. Now again, he reiterates, senseless aggression toward innocent victims enrages me, no matter who is harmed or who commits the act. And rage doesn't begin to describe what he's feeling. But to try to make everybody else, you know, wear a diaper because one person messed his pants, that doesn't solve the problem. And I really love that, uh, that he points out you, you should not be willing to comply with whatever these lawmakers are wanting to foist on you. You're not a bad person when you understand, respect, and exercise your liberty. Love it. All right, shifting gears one more time. Um, I always kind of hesitate when I bring this one up just because it's so easy for this one. This is such a volatile topic. But is there really such a thing as a family-friendly drag show? Now, I have to confess this. Um, I actually have a friend who is a drag artist. 
And, and Ryan is a great guy. He's actually a very conservative Republican. He is a patriot. This guy loves America, and, and he likes to dress up in women's clothes. And he's, he's, he's an artist, though. He is a, a, uh, an entertainer, very talented singer. Um, if, if you've heard of Lady Maga, this is who I'm talking about. Um, he, he's really, he's a good person. And he's also very adamantly outspoken against this, uh, this let's take it to the kids and let's, you know, let's make sure that the kids are being brought to these drag shows and so forth. So when, when you hear things going on about, well, this is a family-friendly drag show, can there really be such a thing? The reason I ask this, I got a great article here from libsoftiktok.com, which, uh, by the way, I think they were just uh, suspended from Twitter yesterday. Not because they were going on about, uh, you know, uh, we hate drag queens or, you know, they, were, they weren't preaching any kind of anger or outrage against the LGBTQ community. But what Libs of TikTok was doing, and this is, I guess, the second time that Twitter has pulled the plug on them, is they were using the actual footage of drag queen events and pride events to illustrate what's going on. And with millions of impressions and millions of people seeing it, uh, people started to complain because there was too much truth getting out there. Here's what the article says. Libs of TikTok says, A few weeks ago, I started noticing the left was ramping up their grooming efforts in the form of family-friendly drag shows open to audiences of all ages. Now, of course, sane people know that the words family-friendly and drag do not go together. After seeing a dramatic rise in the number of drag events targeting kids, I decided it was time to create a thread documenting them. I wanted to show how common, pervasive, and sick this stuff is. Now, the thread documented about 40 examples of family-friendly drag shows hosted in schools, libraries, gay bars, and other venues across the country. And while most of the drag queens in the thread were adults performing for audiences that included children, there were also a few child drag queens as well. Yes, you read that right. In some of these clips, children were dressed in drag and performing for cash tips from adults. Now, the last time he had checked, the thread had received over 4 million impressions. Then the reports from angry leftists started rolling in, outraged. Not that children were being subject to provocative performances from gay men dressed as women. They were outraged that he was drawing attention to it. And the thread was eventually banned in Germany for the crime of reposting drag show flyers and videos. Meanwhile, the drag events were taking place with one particularly outrageous show in Dallas making news headlines. Well, last night, this would actually have been night before last, Libs of TikTok says, I received a notice that I was locked out of my account for abuse and harassment, and Twitter demanded that I delete my mega drag thread post. And they're saying, you violated our rules against abuse and harassment. You may not engage in the targeted harassment of someone or incite other people to do so. This includes wishing or hoping that someone experiences physical harm. And they give them the opportunity here to delete the offending tweet. But look at this. Here's the fine print. By clicking delete, you acknowledge that your tweet violated the Twitter rules. Now, Libs of TikTok says, look, I committed the great crime of noticing. I noticed that drag queens were being used to do exactly as I wrote in the beginning of the thread. Confuse, corrupt, and sexualize kids. It's the furthest thing from innocent, and it has nothing to do with inclusion or acceptance. Twitter thinks it's abuse to document drag shows. I think it's abuse for drag shows to be taking place in front of kids, but don't take my word for it. 
Look at the images that he includes and then decide for yourself. So here's the good news. Two child drag events have been canceled as a result of raising awareness to this phenomenon. One in Apex, North Carolina, and another in Jasper, Indiana. A Texas legislator now says he'll introduce a bill which will ban drag shows in front of minors, while Governor DeSantis has expressed interest in cracking down on drag for kids, too. So where do we go from here? Well, Libs of TikTok says it's obvious that I hit a nerve. That only means that we have to dig deeper into this and continue to expose it. And that's exactly what I intend to do. Now, look, there, there is strong disagreement with the, the prospect of this is appropriate to, to be parading around in front of children. And, and this sign in the background at this, this Dallas drag show, big neon letters, big pink neon letters. It's not going to lick itself. They're not talking about an ice cream cone here. Why would you put kids into a situation like this? You know, one of the theories that I've heard, and I think this is probably the closest to the truth, is the parents who take their kids to these kinds of performances, I don't think they're doing it out of a sense of, well, I just want my kids to, you know, have a broader experience from which they can, you know, experience the world around them. No, I think what this is is um, virtue signaling social justice parents trying to out-virtue signal and out-social justice their compadres. And they're using kids as props. They're using their kids as pawns in this. I don't know. To me, it doesn't pass the sniff test. It really seems like an egregious overreach of, you know, inclusivity to try to uh, warp young minds and to convince them that this stuff is not only fun and, and, uh, you know, exciting, but it's also normal. It's not. That doesn't mean you need to hate on people, but we do need to revisit what's uh, appropriate and what isn't. This is The Brian Hyde Show.